For every successful creator project, there's an equal and opposite one that didn't happen. A sort of parallel universe of possibility that only its creator will ever know about, until now. And I'll be your guide as we speak with artists and innovators about the forking paths and roads less traveled that led to their creative breakthroughs. It's the intersection of possibility, where what-ifs and why-nots collide. Some on the cutting edge, others on the cutting room floor. It's a place I like to call The Bleed. You are listening to Storygram Podcast Network. Hosting for this podcast is generously provided by Transistor at Transistor.fm. It's The Bleed. I'm Daedalus Howell, and I speak with creative entrepreneurs on the cutting edge, like Gina Loveless. She writes for nine-year-olds and 49-year-olds. You may have seen some of her work, uh, if you're 49, at menshealth.com, where she's also a researcher and fact checker for Men's Health and Women's Health magazines. But if you're a kid, you may have seen her series, Diary of a Fifth Grade Outlaw, or her upcoming humorous health and wellness book, Puberty is Gross, but also really awesome. That's coming out in 2021. Sounds great. I'm very happy to be speaking with Gina Loveless. Gina Loveless, you write for everyone between nine years old and 49 years old. Is that true? That's what I read on your website, but is it actually true in real life? Yes, it is. As far as nine-year-olds go, I am the author of an early elementary slash chapter book series, uh, Diary of the Fifth Grade Outlaw. And then I am also the author of a book coming out next March with Rodale Kids called Puberty is Gross, but also really awesome. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks. (laughs) And then for adults, I do freelance journalism and I'm working on a nonfiction book, but primarily the journalism is with Men's Health Magazine. So, And that's a Rodale publication still, right? So actually, Hearst bought Rodale in 2018. And so my book actually was originally also with Rodale Kids. And then Hearst bought the proper company of Rodale in like technically January 1st is when the sale went through. And then like January 2nd, they sold all the books to Penguin Random House. Oh, wow. And so my book went there. And then I knew about this because I was working part-time as a freelance fact checker with the magazine as well. And so then I actually transitioned into just doing freelance fact-checking with them from that sale and everything. And then my book ended up at Penguin. I always say it's not the best of both worlds. It was kind of like a a bad and a good, but like I lost my job, but then my book ended up with a way bigger place. So I was like very happy to have that end up the way it did. So yeah, no, that's super cool. Congratulations both on like writing the book, getting it published and then having it get acquired by an even bigger press. That's so great. I know Rodale... Well, back in the day, like I think in 2016, 2015, 2016, I wrote for Men's Health myself with Eric Spitznagel was my editor. Oh, I vaguely knew him. Yeah, I fact-checked a... Oh, this is lovely. This is where the 49 versus 9-year-old... So I (laughs) fact-checked a 
ball sweat article for him. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember very much so. And then what's funny is like, that's probably also talked about in the puberty book. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eric, it really is the epitome of the nine meets 49 year old. Yeah. I mean, on the nose. Yeah. He was great. We knew each other mostly in Sonoma. We had both moved to Sonoma wine country here in California, North of San Francisco at about the same time. And we just partied and wrote and did crazy together for a couple of years before he moved, I guess, to Florida or Chicago. You know, the guy's been everywhere. I don't know. But great guy. And so I was stoked when he, he pulled me into the men's health arena for a bit. Good times. So let's talk about your creative process. You have a pretty clear distinction between your audiences in terms of publication and all that. But I would imagine that the creative process is similar or different when you're writing for one audience versus the other. Yeah, so they tend to be different, but mostly because of the fiction, nonfiction, I would say, is more so where the difference comes. So puberty even versus like how I'm writing the men's health articles tends to be similar, which is a lot of research at the forefront. And so for both this article I'm working on for an upcoming issue, like I've done a lot of research on the back end of like just trying to find a lot of different studies and then also trying to find experts to talk about those things. And then through what comes out of that is where I can start to shape the story. While on the fiction side, it's completely the opposite of where <laughs> the story is what immediately will pop into my head. And then because there's the freedom of just creating it on my own, it's really just running with whatever idea I start to think of. And I tend to think of in very stream of conscious when it comes to my fiction work. And so I will sometimes just sit down with an idea and once it starts rolling, maybe write, I mean, I've been known to write like about maybe 10 to 20 pages, just straight of like an outline of the idea for a book. So, so you're saying nonfiction, you just don't make it up. Okay, <laughs> that's where I'm going. I knew there was a hang-up somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Do you prefer one over the other? And, and your boss isn't listening, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think fiction is easier because you literally, you're just inventing it. And then when the invention comes, then it's, it's also easy to help to create a justification for something or be able to cut it away and then re- purpose it with something else because now you're realizing as you're uncovering the story, this makes more sense to go in this other totally different direction. Like you can kind of really pivot a lot more easily, I think, and stuff like that. But I do have like a kind of more, I don't want to call it practical, but like this other side of myself that really enjoys having a different kind of work. And I think that's just where the nonfiction comes in is it really challenges me in a different way. And it's not so obvious. And I kind of do like that. I like uncovering as I'm going through research and finding out, oh, I didn't realize this tidbit about this mental health piece, let's say. And I didn't realize that it could affect the body in this way. And then once I ask for information about that from an expert, then suddenly they're like, oh yeah, here's all these connecting points. It can feel a little bit more satisfying sometimes because it's hard research, but you're uncovering it. Maybe these connections for the first time, or you're getting to tell a story for the first time through profiles. I wrote these profiles where I would literally go on Instagram and scroll through the hashtag mental health and look for and this really also sounds fun to say out loud, but like look for guys 
athletic kind of pictures and then read descriptions and try to find guys who really hadn't had their story amplified and were out there being very vulnerable about their mental health story and then contacting them and saying, hey, I write this, I was writing a column for the website that was profiling guys who have overcome these mental health struggles. And that was really satisfying in a different way than like making up a story that has to do with mental health can be knowing that this is really happening to somebody and getting the chance to put that out there and get more people to know that this is happening. And to tell their story too. It's interesting. It's like the difference between invention and discovery. They're similar, but in the end, the experience is ultimately different. And when we write fiction, we obviously are writing about our own creations and but writing nonfiction, necessarily, you're writing somebody else's story. It's fascinating. I just figured that out for the first time. Can you tell? No. <laughs> no, uh, but in all seriousness, I find also with nonfiction, maybe you feel this way too, you develop your craft and you hone your craft and it makes writing fiction, it's easier to be brutal with your stuff. It's easier to make the cuts and pivot like you mentioned earlier when you have to because you see them. You see where the craft is lacking. I think you've nailed the perfect scenario as a writer. I mean, I certainly enjoy it. <laughs> Let's get into the badness section of the bright early experience. Does it make you crazy? Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a sensitive word when I write a lot about mental health stuff. But oh, forgive me. I, I, that's you know, okay. okay. No, and I understand. Honestly, I still use it that way too because I'm still learning to even check my own language and understand where that comes from. No, I'm, I'm being glib and oh. insensitive. By no, it's that, all right. right. I understand. Oh, it's all right. I'm, it's over. I'm going to walk away now. I'm, <laughs> just, yeah. No, but... No, I mean, I think actually for me, I like talking about my mental health because I think it actually is an important piece of why I enjoy like the up and down of my work is because I do have something called bipolar two, which is where basically like instead of it being the high, high, low lows, I get more just the high side, like it's more anxiety inducing on both sides of like good and bad. That also means that there is nerves when I can't figure out what the next step is going to be. And it doesn't matter if it's fiction or nonfiction, that can happen either way. I don't mean to interrupt, but you feel your symptoms are triggered while you're working, like when you're writing? So it's more so like when projects start to actually happen, it's more at the early stages. I think yeah. once I start working, it doesn't really happen because that's my ability to control the situation is to be able to start writing. But in early parts, so for example, I recently had a couple articles greenlit for potential placement in the magazine of men's health. And then the same day I found out that I had an audition for like a comic opportunity. And then I am auditioning for something else that can't really talk about yet, but it's this novel and with another company and the company was asking for basically like more information about my concept for this treatment package that we were putting together. And all of those things needed to happen in a very quick succession <laughs> while yeah. I was also already re-reviewing all the facts in my puberty book. So I tend to throw a lot of things at the wall because I really believe in, it doesn't matter how good your ideas are, they're not all going to stick. With fiction and nonfiction, I mean, you can talk to people on both sides and they'll all say, it's brutal when it comes to pitching. My literary agent, I feel privileged that I'm at a really good house with him and that he is very good. His name's Alex Shane at Writer's House. But we put a book out and I've sent him concepts he even hasn't liked and I've had to start over at the drawing board with. I've had stuff that I've sent to him that he's really liked that we've put out and then there weren't any 
bites on it. And then we've had to come back to the drawing board on it and redo it. I've pitched stuff for nonfiction for journals. I mean, I write for men's health, but I haven't quite broken into another magazine yet. And I've definitely pitched stuff out and all that rejection can be difficult. And at the same time, pitching out and getting a whole bunch of things suddenly when you're used to the rejection, also then used to getting a bunch of maybe possibilities. And so either side of that can be a lot for me, but then it is actually the creativity and the being able to get moving on it that helps me feel more in control. And so I'd say it's just that it really can be like months of nothing and then a whole bunch of things all at once. That's in fiction and nonfiction, I think. Yeah, I'm familiar with bipolar too because I'm cyclothymic, which I always refer to as diet bipolar. It's a, it's a sort of a, a lighter version of it. It's really rapid cycling in my case, okay. right? And so, I mean, my head can be on the table and then I'm back up five minutes later and, and back in it. And it took me a long time to figure out how to manage it. But what I've come to really relish as a superpower, which I always find kind of a cheap word, but I'll use it here, is the creative surge where maybe you get this too, where suddenly like you're writing the 10 and 20 pages because it's vital you feel it the current is within you and it happens but then often with public speaking if i feel i really hit it and the energy was high and all that kind of stuff i know i'm going to pay for it four hours after that i'm just going to have to like lay down i mean stare at a wall and do you go through those kind of processes is that okay to ask oh absolutely so yeah because honestly like i think it is important to talk about all of these things because i think it's really important to normalize this conversation because i've never met you and we are talking about this and we have this incredible similarity right and anybody who's listening to this might also have that and not thought that they were alone in those feelings you know um and so I think it's really important to talk about it. I really want mental health to be the kind of thing where it's just as everyday to mention that you go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist as it is to say you go to the dentist, which nobody has a problem mentioning, unless they're really embarrassed about their breath. <laughs> but, um, you know. Like, Finally, dude. Finally went to the yeah. dentist. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But otherwise, like, I really feel like I want it to be that. So I'm very comfortable talking about it. For me, it's more I feel guilty in the low periods because even though I I can't help that I may be pitching a bunch, have too many things out there, and I literally just have to wait. It's that waiting time where I feel like I should be working more, even though I really need the break. And so it's more of a mental spiral of what's the next project? I'm just going to keep working and then not as much self-care. And so I've been trying to balance that more. So when I have a day of like you just mentioned, getting out maybe 10 pages or 12 pages or 20 or whatever, really giving myself the space to have the next day where I can have the down period because I have to remind myself that the average writer would have taken maybe a week or something to produce (laughs) what I did in a day. Like I've talked to friends who say they write, and they're professional writers too, that were writing maybe 300 words in a day. And that was like really productive for them. And so to remind (laughs) myself that I have a different level and that's okay. And then that balance is important though, to not be hard on myself that that's what the other side of it looks like. Yeah. I had to actually begin to schedule for it, like you're saying, but only after somebody else recognized the pattern and said, Hey, when you book something, book this time to go with it. And that's worked out really well. Let me ask you about the pandemic. Okay. Here's my dirty little secret. It's been pretty great productivity-wise for me. I'm at home. I love how I work. I love where I work and how it's going. And I think I found a new modality that I'm actually really happy with. How do you feel? Yeah, actually similar because I had a little bit of like a 
a FOMO before when it came to <laughs> all the friends things and wanting to always make sure that I was at all of them and seeing all of them and that I would feel bad if I didn't and all those things. And now it just so happened that at the same time I got an influx in work and it really worked out that like I literally well, I can't see any of them and or I will rarely see small amounts from over six feet distances in my yard or something like that. And it's helped take the weight off of that. It helped me realize how much I was putting an emphasis on that. And then at the same time, it let me really feel like I could just focus on my work at a time when there's been more work. And so, yeah, that's actually been like a really helpful thing for me. So that's great. Yeah. Let's talk a little more about like the quotidian experience of being Gina Loveless. Like how do you work? How do you start your day when you decide you're going to work that day? How does it take shape? Sure. So it's funny, my husband and I work on just slightly different schedules. He works second shift. So basically like he's home and will be doing things around the house or reading or something like that or playing guitar. And and I'll start, I have a little dog, not little, she's like medium sized called named Gertie. She's a little pity bulldog mix. And we'll usually like start on the front porch or something like that. But logistic wise, it's really the night before that I start to plan out that day. And so at the end of my day, I always keep like a, a checklist. That's my way of keeping track and control of my day is making sure that I know because of all the different projects that I will have going on, it's important for me to have a list of what's due, what I'm working on, the steps I need to take, and all of that explicitly written out, both because of all the things like I mentioned, but also because of that control feeling. And if there's too many things and they're all just sitting in my head, they all feel like they're all due tomorrow. And it's hard to parse out what to do when, but literally as soon as I write them down, they become concrete and it becomes so much easier. And so I'll just start with my list and that might be that I'm, I still do some fact checking for men's health. So it might be that there was something due at noon and I just need to read back through and fill in the last of the fact checking pieces. It might be that I have the comic coming up and I need to read some other examples of comic transcripts to be able to get inspired. It might be that even, I mean, I was working on that book that I can't talk about yet. <laughs> and, uh, and for me, I knew there was a movie that was the inspiration for it. And I thought, oh, if I just start watching it, I bet I'll get some ideas. And I was only about five minutes in when that kind of rush came and I was able to think of a number of different ideas to go with it and then started working on that because I didn't have something for at least two days and I knew I could focus on just getting that done. So it's never really the same when it comes to what the actual work is, but the days pretty much always look the same as far as the hours worked and sitting on my couch next to my dog to do it. So <laughs> yeah, 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 I hear you. And the checklist is a godsend. I feel the exact same way. In fact, I realized on the app that I use for my checklist, you can do subtasks and that was that changed the game because not only do you like put it down so you know it's gonna happen or you know that you have to do, you can break it down in, in terms of what order to do things within that specific task. And as a creative person growing up, of course, I hated all of that kind of stuff. Anything that was organization-based, I just turned my nose up and my God, it has completely changed my life. You know, <laughs> so... I feel the exact same way. I uh, Anything that seemed, I was saying about how I didn't even want to use the word practical about myself because I have such a, like, aversion to that term. But at the <laughs> same time, 
a checklist is so practical <laughs> and it is very helpful. So <laughs> you could say pragmatic. It sounds smarter. Yeah, I like that better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your top secret projects that you can't talk about, but what's in the future? What's going to happen? When do I get to say I knew her when? <laughs> I guess I could do it right now, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. I mean, I recommend the puberty one is definitely the big one that I'm most excited about. It is a first of its kind, all inclusive puberty book. And so right now, most people would go to the store and say, oh, here's the one for girls. I'll get this for my kid or, oh, this is the one for boys. But we live in a time when not every child necessarily recognizes that their gender is the same as their assigned sex. And so this book is truly for every single kid. And so anyone who, any child that is recognizing going through gender dysmorphia or is recognizing they are a different gender than assigned, then they will be able to feel more identified in this book. And kids who don't maybe understand or know as much about that. They have heard of it, but they don't really understand it. We'll also be able to understand it and still find themselves in this book. It's for everyone. And it's very simply done. It's by talking about assigned sex, which is what children are at birth. Is that assigned sex? And then so they're able to use that terminology to know what's going to happen to them while also still feeling comfortable maybe using different terminology to explain who they are. So great. And so aptly time for my household, I got two kids, uh, 11 and 12, heading right through that door right now. So I'm looking forward to March 23rd, 2021. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, bud. <laughs> <laughs> the backstory on why that's like especially exciting for me is that that book sold in 2017. Wow. And then the Hearst buyout happened and then the transition and then the time and then more time. And then so it was the very first book I sold and it's going to be the fourth book technically that comes out for me, um, <laughs> which is still, like so funny how that can happen. But I'm the most proud of it and I'm really excited for it. Congratulations. And it was such a pleasure talking to you. And let's talk again as things move forward and you can share more about what's cooking for you and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, I would love to, please. To learn more about Gina and her upcoming book and see some of her other work, visit lovelesswriting.com. That's L-O-V-E-L-E-S-S writing.com. To learn more about me, c'est moi, Daedalus Howell, go to dhowell.com. And to learn more about Storygram, our wonderful presenter, go to storygram.com. That's with two M's and an E.com. And thank you, as always, to Transistor.fm for your wonderful and generous hosting. We do appreciate it. And we appreciate you, Bleeder. Looking forward to next time. These short teasers are excerpts from comedian Aiden Park's book, The Art of Being Yay. Think self-empowerment with a comedic twist. These are tough times we're all going through. Who couldn't use a little mental health wellness and laughter? For more of The Art of Being Yay, visit AidenPark.com. That's A-I-D-A-N-P-A-R-K.com. Sponsored by The Laugh Cellar and Storygram Podcast Network. Let me tell you something else. Anger. People do this stuff with anger, too. People are angry. Don't be so angry. It's not virtuous. What are you talking about? What are you talking What? This drives me crazy. If we are cavemen and, you know, we're building a home and then somebody tries to come in and take our baby, we're going to get mad. 
because we're defending what is ours. Anger is a defense for what is our right, what is ours. And it is an emotion that is actually important. It is an important emotion that needs to be honored, not made an enemy of. What are we supposed to do? Oh, just go out and take my baby. No, come on. If someone cheats on you, you're supposed to be like, oh, I should send them love anyway. No, 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 that's wrong. You should be pissed because someone has violated your rights. You let yourself feel that anger and you respond accordingly because something is off and you honor that, you know?